0: Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Scheckman. Several years ago, the tech company Cisco ran a campaign talking about the human network. It tried to humanize their networking products as more than just wires and routers, but focused on the human beings at the other end of those wires and the collective experience of connection. All of that was before the social networks that have been like steroids into the social connections that have been with us, really since man first stepped out of his cave and talked to his neighbor. Today, because of speed and I guess also because of greater self-awareness, we see ourselves as part of a kind of networking feedback loop. Who we connect with impacts who we become and who we are impacts who we connect with. If all of this sounds a bit abstract, my guest Matthew Jackson we'll put it all in perspective. Matthew Jackson is the William Eberle Professor of Economics at Stanford. He's an external faculty member of the Santa Fe Institute and a senior fellow at the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research. He's been researching social and economic networks for more than 25 years. He's written the definitive text on the subject and is a member of the National Academy of Sciences and a fellow at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. It is my pleasure to welcome Matthew O. Jackson here to talk about the human network, how your social position determines your power, beliefs, and behaviors. Matthew, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Jeff.
0: Well, it's great to have you here. One of the things you talk about is how we're constantly kind of reevaluating our networks and rewiring our networks. Talk a little bit about that
1: first. I mean, I guess uh, when you think about the current technology, the internet has um, changed the way in which we have access to things. It's constantly suggesting new friends to you and new co- uh, new connections and and that's changing the way that our networks evolve.
0: And talk about the way in which the actual process of connecting is impacting the kind of human aspect of those connections.
1: What is changing is our perception of what other people are doing, in the sense that now we're in constant, uh, constant reminders of where people are or what updates they're putting on their sites, and and um, so there's there's sort of a, a a flood of information that's coming in on a constant basis, which is being filtered by by these uh, perspectives on what a, the rest of our friends are doing, and and that kind of interaction is is new and different.
0: And in that context of what's new and different, talk a little bit about the patterns that begin to emerge. And there, there are so many patterns that you talk about in the book, whether they're political or social. I mean, there, there's very clear patterns that emerge
1: from all of this. This tendency of, of humans to associate with people who are very similar to themselves so we're more likely to connect with other people who are uh, of the the same ethnicity, religion, gender, age, profession, um, and and for lots of reasons, we we're sort of usually put together with these people. Um, so this is something that that is is constantly happening, and the you know the new technology makes it easier to connect with people who are similar to ourselves, and um, so so that sort of reinforces that. And and when we like certain things, it it finds what we like and it it treats us more of that. And that that happens not only in terms of the kinds of media we're exposed to, but also the people we're exposed to.
0: And one of the things that that becomes clearer and clearer in understanding all of this is no matter how much we try and force diversity, no matter how much we try and desegregate ourselves, that we wind up uh, segregating ourselves anyway by, by the nature of our networks.
1: Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a very difficult tendency to overcome. And and uh, you know, in one study we did, we looked inside high schools, um, and we were looking at one high school that was a little more than half white and uh, almost half black. Um, and yet, inside that high school, so it looked well integrated from the outside, but when you looked inside, um, the kids were. 15 times more likely to be friends with somebody of their own race than across races. So inside the high school the friendships were incredibly segregated and that tendency is is so strong that it's really difficult to overcome and you know people feel more comfortable with people that are similar to themselves and have similar experiences and backgrounds and viewpoints. Being aware of it helps but but overcoming it is very difficult.
0: Were there any places or situations that you have found in your research where it was at least easier to overcome that sense of of people only wanting to identify with and, and, and network with people that are like themselves?
1: Um, I, I guess one environment where it becomes a little bit easier is, uh, to some extent, is um, there's, you know, they, they attempt to, to build teams that are more diverse and deliberately. Um, but, you know, in our in our normal day-to-day social interactions, um, it's it's a much more difficult force to overcome.
0: How much are we aware of this? To what extent do, do we really have a sense of how this is playing out? And how much are, are we really completely unaware of? Are we really fooled in how our networks work?
1: I mean, I think, you know, we're, we're all somewhat aware of it in the sense that we do realize that, you know, we rely on people for a lot of things and that the people around us aren't, you know, necessarily typical of the whole uh, population. But at the same time, I don't think we have nearly the, the appreciation that we should for, for how strong those patterns are. And when you actually look at the networks, the segregation patterns are overwhelming and you know the cliquishness of networks is is really quite quite striking so when you look at human networks they really separate strongly and that's something that that i think helps us understand a lot of things from you know the current polarization that's going on to uh, persistent differences in access to jobs and employment these kinds of things are really heavily de- dependent on these networks and the more that we understand these structures the more we can appreciate that and I think it's it's sort of an extent that we we don't realize how 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 important they are.
0: Is the same true of our relationship to institutions? Do we have the same kind of networking interaction with respect to to institutions that we do with individuals?
1: Um, to some extent, and I, I think that that's being reinforced with social media. That uh, um, now you know, if, if if you think about which news sites you tend to get news from. Uh, especially on the internet, you know, those that that becomes reinforced by what you've liked in the past and, and where you've navigated in the past and what's fed to you. Um, so, so there are there's a, lo- a lot going on now which which sort of reinforces our natural uh, tendencies to, you know, to to look for things that uh, that resonate with us and that that are similar to ourselves. And, and so, institutionally, it happens as well.
0: One of the things you talk about is this, this kind of paradox that we don't really understand the nature of our, our networks and our relationships. We think we have more friends than we have, or we think we have less friends. To expand yeah. on that a little bit.
1: Sure. So, so there's a, a fascinating uh, thing called the friendship paradox. And what, what it actually refers to is, you know, if you have the feeling that your friends are more popular than you are, um, it's actually true. It's a fact. Uh, they they really are. So what what that means is, on average, um, people who are being followed have a lot more followers than the people who are following them. So um, you know, just just as an example, so imagine somebody has 20 friends and somebody has two friends. The person who has 20 friends is influencing 20 people or seen as a friend by 20 people. The person who has two friends is only being seen by two. So that means that people with the most friends in our society end up being most influential and counted as friends by the most people. And and so, and that's true in all of our friendship networks, that the people that we have as friends tend to be not typical individuals, but they tend to be the most connected people in the society. And and that means that we, uh, we you know, we, we take our, our friendship to be, our, our friends usually to be a. A sample from the population, but they're, they're not a typical sample. And people who are more connected tend to be different in many ways.
0: What it really tells us also is this idea of influencers and, and people that have outsized impact on people around them really is true.
1: Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, a fascinating example is actually comes from middle school where when you look at the, the kids who have the most friends they tend to be the, the kids who try smoking at the earliest age. They drink at the earliest age. They try drugs at the earliest age. And so that, that sort of distorts the view that all these kids have of what's normal because the kids that are the big influencers are the ones that are doing the most experimentation with drugs, alcohol, and, and smoking. And so they have a biased perception that you know they're they're always looking to the most popular kids and those kids are acting differently than the typical kid.
0: Is there such a thing then in this framework of the typical kid? Just staying on this metaphor for the moment, because it's it's only typical of a particular
1: group. Yes, yeah, that's true as well. So so um, then when you you, know, you sort of put this together with this idea of of this separation, this homophily, where people are separating according to you know finding people that they like, then you have both segregated patterns and you have um, you know influencers within those groups um but very different groups can have completely different behaviors and and that helps explain a lot of you know economic disparities in terms of access to jobs and access to education
0: talk a little bit about that because you've written a lot about the economic part of this and how it perpetuates certain economic groups economic categories
1: sure so you know the, the fact that that uh, Fifty to seventy percent of our jobs come through referrals. Means that we're really heavily dependent upon others to get jobs, and that means if our friends aren't well employed, we're not going to be well employed. It, even if you've got great qualifications, it, it's hard to get a job, and that that sort of has a feedback effect. It means that groups that that aren't well connected um, to to employment end up not having. Much of a chance of getting their people employed, and and then they become discouraged and drop out of the labor force. So you see pockets of strongly unemployed individuals, and then strongly employed individuals, and and they they tend to correlate in, among groups. And it, it's also true of you know who goes to university. Um, if if you're in a group where none of your friends have gone to school um, to to onto university. Uh, the chances that you will will be small. You won't know how, you know, what it takes to get there, and your parents won't know what it it takes to get there. So, so these kinds of things reinforce themselves and have strong economic consequences.
0: What do we learn when we look at those individuals that are able to, and and I'm not sure how rare they are, you can, can speak to that, that are able to move from one group to another, that are able to change the networks that they're involved in? How complex is that, and what do we learn from looking at those individuals that accomplish that?
1: Yeah, so so there's a, a number of studies that look at sort of these these individuals who occupy special positions, you know, connecting groups and so forth. And they tend to be more creative. They tend to be better informed. They tend to do well in, in business situations. So there's a lot of benefits to sort of being a connector. But it's not an easy thing to do. It, it really takes sort of putting yourself out there. And um, it, it, it's, it ends up having uh, strong consequences. And it is important also for, for sort of, you know, they can be key conduits of new ideas. You know, um, somebody who, who connects economists to computer scientists can help bring in new techniques from computer science into, you know, economics. And the, these sorts of synergies can be really important.
0: We talked a little bit before about social media and its amplifying effect. Talk about it in terms of its distortion effect.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think one real difficulty we have these days is that social media is, um, you know, uh, allowing us to sort of be bombarded by noise at this point, And we have to be more and more reliant on filters to, to sort of filter that out. And it's also having sort of a perverse effect of, of um, taking away the incentives to produce deep, uh, investigative reporting. So, you know, somebody who spends a lot of time researching something and and learning about it. If you, if you're a news service and you put that out on the internet, then it's instantly copied and and disseminated by all sorts of other people. And it's very hard to earn the returns for that. So I think, you know, the, it's been quite disruptive. It's a, a great, Thing is, it's connecting people in ways we've never been connected before, and and with speed and and ability to reach. But at the same time, it's going to take us a while to to really figure out how do we get how do we filter the noise from the real news, and and how do we make sure that that people still have incentives to to produce um, careful uh, and and thoughtful information. It
0: also impacts people's attention spans. I don't know how that relates to this larger networking issue, but, but it does have that impact.
1: Yeah. And I guess, you know, it, it sort of deep down, we're very social animals and we're always interested in what other people are doing. And now the fact that, you know, I, 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 I certainly wouldn't want to be a teenager these days where you can be aware of what all your friends are doing constantly. Um, it, it must be overwhelming. So it's it's You know, it's something that we're always curious and and that plays to our natural instincts and, and it can be quite addictive.
0: When we look historically at other networking phenomenon that have happened, whether it's travel or the telephone or the printing press, what do we learn from those experiences that has relevance to what we're going through today?
1: I mean, I, I think one overwhelming lesson is that that, that globalization has actually been a very uh, beneficial force. So when you look at, at um, the shipping that has happened over time and the increase in trade that is basically taken place since the Second World War, that has produced the most peaceful period that we've ever had. So to some extent, the you know the sort of increase in connectedness in the world. Has been a, a great uh, a, a great benefit, in, in bringing prosperity and um, an end to a lot of conflicts. Um, but at the same time, it's you know it's it's made us more uh, more interconnected in these other ways that that are, are are difficult to to overcome.
0: Has it made us smarter? Has has the wisdom of networks, the wisdom of crowds, really had an impact?
1: Um, You know, I think it's, it's, that's a difficult one. So on the one hand, there's a lot of kinds of, you know, basic information that that's not controversial, that that's easier to obtain. But I think the, the more, um, the, the more that something becomes ideological and political, the more difficult it is to sort out the noise from from fact. And so the, the more incentive people have to try and pull you in certain directions. And so, you know, the, the, the combination of easy reach and easy production of, of information um, means that uh, on the one hand, that's great for just finding out very simple facts, you know, for, for looking up, uh, I don't know, some fact on the internet of, you know, a historical fact. It's, it's at your fingertips now, but trying to figure out Um, you know, what's actually going on in politics um, can be much more daunting. And finally, what is it that we don't
0: yet understand about how these networks work? What's the the cutting edge of the work that you do right now?
1: Yeah, I, I think one of the cutting edge questions is, you know, we're actually involved in a lot of different networks at the same time so i you know i cooperate with people at work and i'm i'm working with people i'm getting advice from people i might be getting help from people i'm learning from people all these different types of interactions are are sometimes overlaid and sometimes not and so understanding the interaction between those different types of things it's you know it might be that it's there's certain people that it's great to cooperate for at, at work or uh, as a colleague but they might not be the best person to ask for for financial advice. And and our networks tend to be the same in, in on a lot of dimensions. And so understanding when it is that we reach different people for different things, that's something that, that's sort of a, a, a cutting-edge question now. Matthew
0: Jackson, his book is The Human Network, How Your Social Position Determines Your Power, Beliefs, and Behaviors. Matthew, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Well, thanks for having me, Jeff. Thank you.